You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When Ontario's election campaign began about a month ago, everyone in the province was waiting to see in which direction the polls would move. In two days now, Ontario votes. The province is still waiting. It was assumed that this election would be a referendum on Premier Doug Ford's performance. Meanwhile, progressives were looking towards the recent federal liberal and NDP supply and confidence motion as an example that the left in Ontario could unite when it was in their best interests to do so. But that hasn't happened. Ford has held steady in the polls the entire time despite the occasional gaffe, like his insistence that more highways will actually help fight climate change. Rather than teaming up to try to hold the Ford government to a minority, however, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca and NDP leader Andrea Horvath have spent much of the time attacking not Ford, but one another. So on June 2nd, the fate of the province is in the hands of the voters alone. What will they have to say about it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Richard Southern is the Queen's Park reporter for City News. He has been on the campaign trail all month. Hi, Richard. Jordan, it is good to be back with you. Uh, How exciting is this that we are so close to the big day? So I don't know how exciting it is because that's what (laughs) we're going to talk about today. It feels like this month has pretty much flown by and... Not much has changed, I guess. Well, let's just start with this. With a couple of days to go before Ontario votes, has anything about this campaign uh, been surprising to you? I guess the only surprise to me is that it hasn't been as hectic, as maybe, dare I say, as exciting as I was expecting it. You know, a lot of myself and my media colleagues were expecting this to be, for there to be a lot of mudslinging, for this to be a close race. None of those have really panned out. I mean, we've seen some mudslinging. There's been some opposition research. People have dug into the history of some candidates and some parties, the liberals in particular, have lost some candidates. But other than that, it's been fairly peaceful as far as campaigns go. But the biggest takeaway, Jordan, is certainly that the polls haven't budged. And the way this race looked on day one of the campaign is pretty much how it looks here on day 27, believe it or not. Mm, So just break that down. Uh, Day 27, where do the polls stand? What do they say will happen on June 2nd? The polls have pretty much all been in agreement. You don't see that all the time because, you know, some of these polls, they're they're from organizations that are a little bit more left-leaning or a little bit more right-leaning. The polls have been pretty much in agreement since January, and they haven't budged much throughout this campaign You look at the latest one that came in last night from Main Street, and this is pretty indicative of where they all stand. Conservatives with 37% support. And then it's a battle for second place. That's the, I mean, if you believe the polls, Jordan, and you know, it's a cliche to say, but the, the only poll that matters is on election night. But if you believe the polls, it's a race for second place. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're seeing the exciting race here. So PCs with 37% support, they're in the lead. The Liberals, 27% followed by the NDP at 24. So it's a toss-up at this point who could form the official opposition. That's where your exciting race is. So all of these polls, if you break it down by by seat, it looks like Doug Ford will win another majority. Some of the models, believe it or not, 
have the Doug Ford conservatives winning a larger majority than they did four years ago. Hmm. I mean, that's astounding to think about. I mean, when you look at how tumultuous things were, certainly through the first half of the Doug Ford government, I don't think anyone expected a larger majority than when the liberals got trounced right. four years ago, but that's certainly a possibility. That's the question right now, Jordan. How big is the majority going to be and who's going to come in second? So considering that nothing much moved in the polls from the beginning of the race until its almost conclusion, can you maybe break down the campaigns run uh, by the four parties and and why nothing moved the needle, I guess, is what I'm struggling to think about. Just because, and again, everybody knows social media is not the world, but there was a prevailing thought on social media, and I think, as you mentioned, among your colleagues, that this was going to be a wild election race. And what did the campaigns each party ran have to do with that not materializing? Sure. I mean, so both the NDP and the Liberals and indeed the Green Party, they tried to throw all sorts of things at the Conservatives to try and budge this race. None of them really stuck. I mean, let's look at the Liberals. And I think the Liberals really came out strong with Del Duke at the beginning of the campaign. They slowly launched their platform over, you know, the course of a week or two. A lot of easy to understand ideas, you know, promising uh, a higher minimum wage of $16 per hour, promising a handgun ban. You know, this is before we saw the tragic events in Buffalo and in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, but the Liberals on April 19th actually were the first time they promised that handgun ban in Ontario. When after affordability, the Liberals did, promising to get rid of the provincial tax on prepared foods under 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. So things like that rotisserie chicken you might buy will, uh, will be cheaper. Right. None of these easy-to-understand measures, though, really moved the needle for the Liberals. And then the Liberal campaign got into some trouble. Three candidates dropped out. The Liberals are actually not running candidates in three ridings. This is the first time since, like, Confederation that we've seen this happen. Uh, it's because the, the NDP and the PCs, they dug into the history of some of these candidates. In, in some cases, they found some homophobic remarks that were written by these candidates in books or online, and that led to their departure. So they've had uh, some issues with with that. Uh, candidate for the Liberals dropped out in Chatham Kent Leamington last week because her paperwork was allegedly not correct. She didn't have the correct signatures on it. So maybe you could argue a bit of a sloppy campaign in that regard for the Liberals. You know, the NDP were certainly hoping to, you know, just gain 10 seats and then maybe work with the Liberals. That's kind of what they were saying in not so many words. You know, they came out with a lot of affordability issues uh, as well. They're promising a $20 uh, minimum wage by 2016. Uh, they are uh, promising to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They're promising to cap the price of gasoline on a weekly basis to stop the big up and down moves for gasoline. They're promising to hire 20,000 teachers and education workers uh, but I think, you know, if you look at the debates, NDP leader Andrea Horvath struggled to be heard over the other individuals in those debates. And then, of course, COVID came along. Andrea Horvath got COVID uh, halfway through this race, and that right. took her off the campaign trail uh, for the better part of a week. She did campaign virtually, but, you know, it's not the same, and she might have lost a bit of an edge in that regard. Green Party leader Mike Schroeder, he may have won, run the best campaign, but, you know, it's easy to do when you don't have much to lose. Mm -hmm. But Schreiner looked great during the debates. Uh, you know, he's the only one talking about certainly what is a very important issue in climate change to any great degree. And the Greens could 
uh, pick up a seat in Muskoka. Uh, it's possible. Uh, they only have the one now, Mr. Schreiner. They could gain another one. But then you come to the front runner, Doug Ford, and he has run a classic uh, Jordan front runner campaign. What does that mean? He stuck to his message and he hasn't made any mistakes and he hasn't gone out and, you know, hasn't had the opportunity to make too many mistakes. Right. Uh, because they have kept him away from the media to a certain extent. We could talk more about that. We will, yes. I think some people have overblown that. But classic frontrunner campaign in that he hasn't made any mistakes. He's stuck to his message. He's not out there making any wild promises. They put all their cards on the table uh, uh, platform-wise at the beginning of the campaign. He's been very reserved. If you've watched Mr. Ford over the years, you know he can easily get riled up. He speaks off the cuff. Maybe that's a good thing. But sometimes he can say things that maybe he later wishes he didn't say, or that can get him in trouble. That hasn't happened during this campaign. Uh, he has been well-rehearsed, I think. He's stuck to his talking points. He knows he's in the lead, and they've sort of buckled down, and they've run this classic front-runner campaign where they haven't made any mistakes thus far. So that's kind of where we are. Nothing's really knocked the conservatives here in the, in the 27 days of this campaign. Well, the last time we spoke at the beginning of this campaign, you know, we talked about where the polls were then. They're very close to where they are now. And the one thing that stuck out to me that we spoke about was the potential for the liberals and the NDP to work together to hold forward to a minority uh, or back one another strategically, somewhat akin to the way uh, their federal counterparts have done. Has that played out on the campaign trail at all? Have they been working arm in arm with one another? No, they've been fighting each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really have been going at each other because, I mean, if they look on a, you know, a race-by-race -race basis, there's a lot of areas where uh, the liberals feel they can take votes away from the NDP, especially in downtown Toronto proper. So it's for that reason they've really gone at each other a lot, you know, uh, and you do have to wonder about the strategy there. Should they be attacking uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives in unison? I don't know, perhaps. I mean, we did hear some talk before the election from both of the, the leaders, Mr. Del Duke and Ms. Horvath, about, hey, if there was a minority conservative government, would you guys join forces? And they both seemed open to that possibility in that they both said we wouldn't support a conservative government. But this is all something that would happen after the election if there right. was a minority, not something that really plays out during the campaign. And I asked just last Friday, Ms. Horvath, hey, do you wish you worked closer uh, with the liberals. And, you know, she's back to her talking points of the saying, no, we're, we have a stark difference in policy. We have our own way. We're the only way to unseat Doug Ford. So these are two parties that are very far apart. This is where I want to stop you and speak for the voter, because the one thing that I've seen during this campaign uh, from the liberals and the NDP and from the Green Party, of course, too, but leaving them out, uh, both major progressive parties have messaged on, you know, Ontario cannot afford more of Doug Ford. He's destroying this province. He's privatizing things, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, as a voter, again, it rings a little hollow when you run with that message so prominently and then spend your time not working together. Like, if this is so important, you would think that they could put their partisan issues aside and agree that Doug Ford is the worst thing for Ontario and try to run on that. It doesn't feel like that. No, I, I mean, look, these are, there's a lot of money at stake in these two parties. They do have some stark platform differences and we're just not at the point where I think they're going to say, let's, uh, let's work together because that could work to their disadvantage, uh, their respective disadvantage in, in a lot of cases. So we're not there yet. I mean, if there was, is, was a minority PC government elected, I think you could see some 
movement on that front, but it's it's not something you're going to see during the campaign. Uh, it is splitting the vote. I mean, let's not let's not beat around the bush. You know, you're going to have. 60-some percent of Ontarians voting for a party that is not the Conservative Party Mm -hmm. that's going to win, likely. So, I mean, that's you have to take issue with, you know, you'll blame that, if you will, on on vote splitting, but also on the system, a parliamentary system as it stands right now. So there's, you know, there's broader issues to talk about when you bring stuff like that up, I think. Okay, fair enough. Let's talk about Ford's strategy. Uh, As you mentioned, keep him away from the media or at least keep him under control and not uh, flying off the cuff. There have been a lot of accusations uh, about not just Ford, but PC candidates ducking debates, uh, ducking questions from the media. How open has this party been to taking questions from the public and the media? And I mean, City News reported extensively on this in various writings. And, and what's that impact been in terms of coverage of this campaign? Yeah, certainly the local candidates not participating in debates has is a real thing and a widespread thing. And yeah, we have done a lot of coverage on this. And my my colleague Cynthia Mulligan has done a lot of work on this. I mean, um, yeah, a most I think the majority of the writings um, have seen the PC candidate not participate in the debates. Again, there's a you know a classic front runner strategy in that you know why risk it if we're if we're leading why put these guys out some of them are not um as experienced mm-hmm. politicians as others why put them out there to make a potential mistake that's the way the party's looking at it of course this is not great for democracy you as as a, a citizen you want to see your local representatives up there talking in a debate having a, a lively debate about the issues i think you know people deserve that so, yeah, I don't think it's great that the candidates are not out debating. Uh, but you can see politically why, how the PCs are, are treating that. Why, let's, why put these guys out there when they can make a mistake? Now, on the issue of is Doug Ford available, could he be more available? Absolutely. Has there been sometimes a combative relationship between the press and Ford's office over the years? Yes. But if I want to ask Ford a question on almost any day... I could probably do it. Uh, they don't take virtual questions as the other parties do, but a lot of the events have been in and around the GTA. So speaking just for me personally, uh, if I, as I have done many times, you know, want to head to Brampton where a lot of the events have been for Ford because they have some closed ridings there or, you know, to Southwestern Ontario, uh, I can drive out there and I'll be able to ask Ford one question and one follow-up. So a lot has been made about him not being available and he could be more available, but at the same time, I've been able to ask a question when I want to ask a question. I want to ask you about a few issues as we approach uh, the end of the campaign trail that have been raised recently. One of them, and I don't know if you've seen this, but I I want to ask since, uh, as you say, you know, the polls haven't moved, barring anything major, it looks like another Ford majority. There were a whole lot of reports this weekend um, about smaller items being removed from OHIP coverage, uh, blood tests and things like that. Is this something that we should expect more of? Uh, If Ford wins, I'm trying to get a handle as... As we near the vote, I'm trying to get a handle on what the next four years will look like. So I'm actually working on a story about this now and trying to figure out uh, whether or not it's true or not. Okay, so these are some tweets that people have made in the last or over the weekend talking about how blood tests are, are, are some blood tests are not covered under OHIP. Um, I'm still trying to figure out all the details, but what I found out so far is there haven't been any 
changes to OHIP blood coverage in like at least two years. Hmm. Most blood tests are covered under OHIP. So um, I'm not going to say whether or not that's true or not at this point. It's not looking like it is very true. Okay. I mean, a lot of people accuse Doug Ford of privatizing healthcare. We actually saw on Sunday a protester run on the stage while Ford was holding a big event in London, Ontario. And he was stopped by OPP security just like a foot away from Ford. And he was yelling, hey, you're privatizing healthcare." There's been no evidence that Ford has, has initiated any more privatization in healthcare. I mean, there's been a lot of misquotes uh, attributed to the outgoing health minister, Christine Elliott, on this. But they are, from what we understand, misquotes. And uh, from what I can garner at this point, there hasn't been. Where do you think this fear comes from then? Canadians, you know, not just Ontarians, Canadians, as you know, Jordan, uh, they are very passionate about our socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. And look, healthcare maybe hasn't been a big enough issue in this campaign. Uh, Doug Ford, four years ago, promised to end hallway medicine. And you walk into most hospitals now and you're still going to see a lot of overcrowding issues. And certainly COVID highlighted those issues. Has Doug Ford fulfilled all his promises on healthcare? I don't think so. So should we be talking about that more? Perhaps, yes. But again, I don't think there's been any more privatization going on. Ontarians are always worried about that. And I think there are people on the left who maybe want to bring up some uh, maybe personal issues they've had, like going into a life labs and being charged for a test. And they tweet that out, though, without realizing, is this new? Is this mm. something that's been changed in the last four years? They put it out there under the guise that it is, but I'm not 100% sure that that's accurate right now, which is why... I think mainstream media is important. And again, this is a story we're working on to try and get to the bottom of it. Fair enough. Um, the other issue I wanted to ask you about, you already mentioned it at the beginning, um, that aside from Mike Schreiner, there hasn't really been a lot of talk about climate from the candidates. And we actually did an episode on this uh, with one of our friends from the Narwhal at the beginning of the campaign, uh, illustrating that none of the candidates, aside from Schreiner, really had a climate plan at all. Halfway through this campaign, uh, we saw a terrible storm uh, that eventually killed nine people. Uh, there's still people without power in Ottawa right now, where Doug Ford is today, uh, to talk about this emergency. Why do you think, you know, given all of that, that climate hasn't been an issue? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, with what's going on. I mean, this is just, it's not a case in Ontario. I mean, you look at the U.S. election, it hardly came up there in their presidential election almost two years ago. Sure. It's hard, I think, for, for people to it's to look at this issue. And a lot of it is still, you know, 10 years out, or even though we are feeling the effects now, it's something that is down the road. And people are concerned about going to the grocery store and being able to afford their grocery bill. So they're more concerned with those immediate issues. Why is it costing me 150 bucks to fill the gas tank? Mm -hmm. That's what people are worried about. PC leader Doug Ford, he's run his campaign around one of the big issues is building two new highways. Yes. I mean, just today he was in Ottawa, not visiting with people who have had their power out for eight whole days. There's still thousands of people without power for eight days. He hasn't been visiting with them. He was today promising to expand Highway 417, right. which is a major highway that cuts through Ottawa. So he has run his campaign on building highways. He actually said the other day, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, um, he was asked about climate and the uh, highways and all this. And he says, well, we believe that ending gridlock will improve emissions. This is, was, was his, his, his thought, that if you don't have people stuck bumper to bumper, that there's going to be fewer emissions. Don't think that's necessarily true, but that's how Mr. Ford was trying to spend it. That's why they keep him away from the media during, <laughs> during this campaign. Case in point. Yeah. 
Case about, but you know, it is crazy that we haven't talked about climate more. And I think you, you hear that exasperation from Mr. Schreiner when he talks. I want to briefly return to the polls, uh, not to harp on them and not to necessarily predict the outcome, but to ask you, you know, we spoke uh, at the beginning of this campaign, again, about the key ridings uh, that would have to flip for the Liberals or the NDP to have a chance at keeping Mr. Ford to a minority. I know what the polls say, but what about at a riding level? Um, the Liberals and the NDP can go at each other all they want, but if the people decided to vote strategically, is this still within a margin where some of those key seats could flip and we could be talking about a minority government? Potentially. There are some very close ridings. I mean, you need look no further than Brampton North. Uh, it's been a key battleground. You've seen all the leaders spend a lot of time there. Um, right now, you have PC, the PC candidate, uh, Graham McGregor, uh, in the lead, but only very slightly in, in Brampton North. That's one that could go either way. Uh, you look at the writing of of Essex, uh, another very close one uh, in that region. Uh, Tory candidate Chris Lewis lost by just 2,700 votes to the NDP there four years ago. The NDP incumbent Taras Natashak is no longer running. That's a writing that's up for grabs. Uh, Ottawa, West Nepean, another nail biter at this point by all accounts. PC incumbent candidate Jeremy Roberts won by just 175 votes four years ago. He was with uh, PC leader Ford today. Ford was there trying to give him a bump. Uh, the uh, new Democratic candidate, uh, Ms. Pasma, uh, is uh, close in the polls there. And then you have Perry Sound Muskoka. This has been a Tory stronghold for a long time, but it looks potentially like the Green Party candidate, Matt Richter, hmm. could perhaps unseat uh, the the Tories in Perry Sound, Muskoka. There's a few close races here, Jordan. You know, whether it's going to be enough to make it for an interesting election night for Doug Ford on Thursday, I don't know. I would say at this point, I don't think so. Fair enough. Uh, last question then, assuming that there isn't an upset, what happens next if the progressive conservatives do retain power? And here, I guess, because I assume nothing would change uh, from the government's point of view, specifically to the liberal and NDP leaders and parties. Um, this would be twice in a row that they've lost to Doug Ford, which has to make them think changes are necessary. I think it's possible you could see two party leaders resign on election night. This is very possible. Certainly NDP leader Andrea Horvath, she's running her fourth election. If she were to, as the polls are suggesting, lose ground, perhaps lose the official opposition status, you know, I think it would be incumbent on her to step aside. We'll see if we see that on election night or not. Mr. Del Duca is going to be an interesting case. Um, I've neglected, uh, I'm sorry to mention his writing uh, of, of Woodbridge, uh, which is very close. He is actually losing uh, that huh. riding uh, in terms of the polls right now. It's very possible uh, that Mr. Del Duca does not win his home riding of Vaughn Woodbridge, where Mr. Michael Tobolo, an incumbent PC candidate, is leading in the polls. We've seen Ford go door knocking with Mr. Tobolo a few times, Del Duca running behind in his home riding. So if he were to, first of all, not really have his party contend to any great degree to form government, number one, but also to lose his home riding, you could think that it might be incumbent of him to resign on election night. So there could be a lot of turbulence going on across the aisle if this is how it plays out on election night. As far as what it means going forward for the conservatives, it's going to be really interesting. You know, a year ago, 
Doug Ford was in trouble. We had, you remember last April, going back just over a year ago, we had that big wave of the pandemic come in. Uh, Ford had that much maligned news conference where he said, we're going to have the police, you know, check everyone's ID. We're going to close down the playgrounds. Mm -hmm. A day later, he backs away from that. Things were, there was turbulence. There was a big uh, trouble around Doug Ford politically at that point. What happened then? We had two people step in. Mr. Corey Tonight, who is running this PC campaign, and Nick Kuvalis, a longtime Ford family friend and pollster. These two gentlemen took over at that point, and they righted the ship. They have run this campaign, uh, you could argue, very well. Uh, basically, from, from October or November, we've seen the messaging being brought in by the conservatives. They have righted the ship. They have steadied Doug Ford. Uh, they have prepared him for these media avails where I say he's been very uh, relaxed and very in control and sticking to his talking points. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when these two gentlemen leave because the campaign is going to be over. What does Doug Ford do then? What does he do in his first 100 days? Um, when does he bring the legislature back? It's going to be interesting. To, uh, and who who does he fill uh, the key uh, portfolio spots with? He's losing his health minister and deputy premier in in uh, Miss Elliott. Right. Uh, he's lost one of his top ministers in Rod Phillips. Who does he replace these people with? And who's going to be in control uh, in his office? Big questions going forward. I should mention, Jordan, we just got the numbers in from Elections Ontario. The advance polls were open for 10 days. Just over a million Ontarians voted. Wow. 9.9% of eligible Ontarians voted in the advanced polls, which were open for 10 days. How does that compare to four years ago? Well, it's up. 6.8% of eligible voters voted four years ago in the advanced polls, almost 700,000. However, those polls were only open for five days. So if, you know, it doesn't, the numbers are not double even though the polls were open for twice as long. So there's a couple ways to look at that. But I still say it's pretty uh, interesting that almost 10% of the electorate voted in, in the advanced polls. That shows certainly some interest in this election. We will see how the other 90% vote, if all 90% of them do. It's usually about 50%. We'll see if we get over 50% turnout. That'll be interesting to see. We'll see what the other 40% want to do with this <laughs> province. Um, Richard, thank you. And uh, it's not over till it's over. So let's see what happens on election day. Can't wait. We'll see. Thank you, Jordan, for having me. Richard Southern, Queen's Park reporter at City News. Citynews.ca, by the way, is where you will find Richard's story on OHIP changes or on no OHIP changes. Meanwhile, you can find this podcast at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can write to us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us, leave us a voicemail, say anything you like, ask a question. 416-935-5935. We'll be waiting to hear from you. If you're listening to this podcast in a podcast player that lets you rate and review it, we would be so grateful if you would do just that. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.